All right, so I'm going to read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 just to get us started. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to talk about the gospel. This says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. But some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and you believed. This is so important. This is, um, this is just the gospel. We need to always start our study out with this, understand why that we're here, understand why that, um, that we want to learn about this God whose soul loved us, that came into this world to deliver us um, from our sins and transgressions. Because we understand that God is holy. We have a God who is perfectly holy and perfect. And so his creation, he created, and it was all good. And of course it was shattered whenever Adam and Eve sinned and, and committed treason against God which completely shattered all of God's creation. And so every person ever born was born with that nature of sin with Adam. And so Jesus came into this world, um, became one of us, truly God, truly man, in order to be the second Adam, in order to do what Adam failed at doing, and that was to be perfectly obedient to God, to God the Father. And so he lived a perfect life for us, that was uh, very important. It was important that he was truly man and he was able to do that. And it was also very important that he went to the cross and died for us because only truly God could do that. Only God could take the punishment, the wrath of God for the sins of, the, of every person who would ever believe throughout history. Uh, that's just a, an amazing burden, an amazing weight. All of that sin placed upon Jesus Christ whenever he went to the cross. And he took it. He was able to bear it. And he did it for us. He did it because he loved us. And then whenever he died, Brandon talked about propitiation today. That means that God was satisfied. He was satisfied in the, in the death of Jesus Christ. It should have been us up there. We should have been the ones that died. He died as a substitute. He died for us. It's just, it's just an amazing, amazing thing. And God was pleased with that. But not only did he die, but he was buried. 
and he was raised again from the dead on the third day. That's so important. That's what Paul's talking about here, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and then he has started appearing to people. You know, this is one of the proofs where we look at and we see that there's all these different witnesses that saw Jesus after he came back from the dead, right? Because what did the Romans try to do? They try to say, oh, maybe somebody stole his body. The apostles probably stole his body. He's not, he's not really alive. But then he starts appearing to all these people, which just solidifies everything, all this work that he really truly did raised from the dead. And this is amazing. So that's the gospel, that Jesus died for us, that we could one day when we die, or when Jesus Christ comes back, we're going to stand face to face before God, and we can be able to stand there and say, you know, I didn't do anything. I couldn't do anything. But I have the blood of Christ that's been applied to my life. And so God is going to see that, and that's going to be pleasing to God that Jesus died for us, and we are in him. We belong to him. We're part of his family. We're his children. That is the gospel. You guys have any questions or thoughts on that? I was looking at, you know, verse 10, which basically says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Yeah. So when he's saying, I am what I am, basically, he is saying, I'm forgiven. Mm -hmm. and it's only by God's grace that I'm even able to be here and preaching to you. That's right. But, you know, a lot of people think, well, I am what I am, and they don't want to change. That's right. <laughs> and so I think one of the issues that I'm struggling with right now, I have a couple of people in the grief share, uh, that I'm not sure they're saved because they have not accepted the forgiveness, you know, they want to stay stuck in the past, yeah. in their sin, and they know it's wrong, but, but keep saying, you got to read Paul. Yeah. you got to sure. read it, you, Paul, and like what Brandon said today, you've got to read David. Yeah. So just trying to get people to understand that you're really not a true believer if you don't believe Jesus already took care of that. For you and other people, you know, and that's just so hard for some people that have a really bad past yeah. that they can't move past that. Yeah. Um, yeah, they can't comprehend what God said that you right. are forgiven, and it is it is an, an act of unbelief, and and so we, you know, we say that to say that Jesus. Um, didn't forgive me, forgave everybody else, but not me. That is technically a, an act of unbelief. It's a sin. Right. Uh, whether or not that it's they're saved or not, I don't know. Yeah, you know? that's the thing that's hard to know. Yeah. But if they're also <clears throat> saying, well, I don't want to read my Bible, I'm thinking, oh, that's another thing that yeah. is a big light, which bright light there. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. tough. But you're right. Where, where he's talking about, I am that I am, what I am. You know, just talking about how that he wasn't um, worthy to be an apostle, and so he wasn't worthy of this great mission that God has given him. He was calls himself the least of the apostles, but by the grace of God, that is the the Holy Spirit and and God. You know, God 
coming and meeting him on the road to Damascus and changing him and, and saving him in that moment um, and indwelling him with the Holy Spirit, which now he's out doing the same things that the apostles are doing. You know, this is a, this is talk dealing with sanctification too. This is dealing with what what he's doing after he has become saved. And so he is now even even God this is him even pointing we talked about monergism, um, how that it's all God's work. We can see monergism here even um, in in sanctification. He's saying it's not me. You know, it's God. The only reason I'm able to do these things, the only reason that I can be counted as one of the apostles is because, not because of me, but because of the Holy Spirit. And so all, all I'm doing is working out my salvation with fear and trembling, right? As it talks about, um, he talks about later. So, yeah, that's good. That's good. Any other thoughts? Questions on that? It's a good section of Scripture dealing with both sanctification and justification so it's very good very good and of course this is all leading up to our study on the sovereignty of God because we have been talking about soteriology a, a crash course on soteriology and does anybody remember what soteriology means the tech, what, what does that fancy theological term mean Mm -hmm, the way in which that you're saved. That's right. You can change some of these terms so they're closer to what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I understand that. Just put a V in there somewhere. <laughs> Salvationology. Yeah. Save it, yeah, yeah, salvationology. Save Save yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's right. So we've been going through. Uh, we're on, we are now on page 109. On 109. We've been going through different views of soteriology. Uh, we covered monergism versus synergism. We talked about how that monergism is uh, God acting alone in salvation. Synergism is us acting along with God in salvation. Uh, we talked about Pelagius and what he believed and how that he thought that people were saved, which were, was also um, led to the semi-Pelagian view, which led to the Arminian view. So there's a different view on, um, these, these guys have a different view on how sovereign that God really is, because that's what we're dealing with. Is Everybody says God's sovereign, but it's to what degree is God sovereign? Is he ultimately 100% sovereign in everything? Or is he only sovereign up till um, up to where man has free will, right? And then all of a sudden he's not sovereign anymore. Man's sovereign because you have one person sovereign or the other, right? And so that's what we've been going through and talking about and dealing with. We went through um, Augustine last week, started talking about what it is that Augustine believed. Um, Augustine and John Calvin essentially be believed the same thing. We started with Augustine because he is probably um, just as well recognized as John Calvin uh, throughout um, the church. He's, he's a very, very huge, important character in church history, and he made a major impact on, um, on not only Calvin, but on all the reformers. All the reformers were majorly impacted by Augustine. 
And so we talked about some of the main things that he talked about that he focused in on. Of course, he was um, kind of in a uh, serious debate between Pelagius and himself. He highly disagreed with Pelagius. Pelagius highly disagreed with um, with Augustine, and so they wrote a lot of letters together or against one another. And so we read through some of that last week. Talked about original sin. We talked about um, how that man's will, free will, um, is still there, is still present, but it has been contaminated by sin. And so now um, men always, we say that men, men always choose what their strongest desire is. That's, that's what they're always going to, cho to choose to do. R.C. Sproul said, tells a story about, to prove this point, he says, you know, what about if you're walking in a dark alley and a guy jumps out and points a gun at you and says, give me your wallet or die? Well, Sproul says, well, you still have a choice to make, don't you? You still have a choice. You can, st you can make the choice, no, <laughs> and you can take the bullet or you can give him your wallet, all right? So you're, what's your strongest desire in that moment? <laughs> what's your strongest desire to do is what you're going to do. And so because of that, we can see that fallen man, their strongest desire is to sin. That's all that they want to do. That's, that's what they love. That's why we have atheists. That's why we have all these different people that try to come against God and try to disprove God because mankind loves their sin. And so that's the point that Augustine was trying to make um, in a lot of his writings. And um, now we have gotten to John Calvin. We're going to start talking about John Calvin on page 109. So before we jump in, does anybody have any thoughts or questions or anything before we get started? Well, I was reading, I don't know where I was reading this, but Second Peter... 1 20 and 21 which says knowing this first that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man the holy men spoke as they were moved by the holy spirit because we're studying people that they make their own interpretations mm -hmm. all interpretations that are different than scripture have created all these <coughs> false religions yeah that's right. And so we always have to be very careful, mm -hmm. and especially people that even go read the the older people like Calvin and the guy. Some of those, some people today, really put these people on a pedestal. You know, and it just depends on which religion you're in. So any time you're putting what one of these people says on a pedestal, you better have the Bible That's right. ready to knock them off. Or to back up. To back up. Yeah, to back up. You know, you're putting your yeah. faith in a man's interpretation. Right, but, so. but also God has given us teachers. And that's, that's the important thing. God, that there's a reason that God has <clears throat> given us teachers. And that's so that His Word can be rightfully understood. Uh, that is a great blessing from God, that he's given us such men as these that have helped us to come to a greater understanding of Scripture. Because when we're left alone, then we're, we tend to go toward heresy. And that's one of the things that I've been talking to um, about with the kids on Sunday mornings, 
is we just went through and covered historical heresies. And one of the things that I said is, why are we studying church history? Why is it important for us to, to study what the, these men have taught and also what the, taught, what the church has taught, how heresy came into the church? Uh, why is this stuff so important? You know, how come it's important for us to see how that we had to sharpen our theology throughout time? And that is simple. It's so that way we're not deemed to make the same mistakes, right? Because that way we learn. We learn, we grow, we sharpen ourselves. We compare everything that everybody says to Scripture. You are nailed it on the head. That's exactly right. We want to say, hey, what do these people say? And does it line up with Scripture? We compared what Augustine said. It, it lined up with Scripture. We, we uh, looked at what Pelagius said, and it did not. And so that's why that we went in and read Romans chapter 5. So it's really important for us to see Scripture and say, hey, you know, are these guys sharpening our understanding? And But I think it's a great blessing. I'm very encouraged when I read guys, um, especially reformers, my understanding of theology and my awe of God. Um, I mean, if you really want to have a, a big view of God, you know, read, read the Puritans, read some of the reformers, and your view of God is highly magnified because that's what they did was magnify God. Had a very small view of man, but a huge view of God. So yeah, that's you're right. We have to take everything that any man says, because they're not apostles. They're not speaking for God. We can never say that what they say is equal with Scripture, because it is not. They're just they're just preachers, and that's what these guys were. They were preachers, just like Brandon, mm -hmm. because because they got famous. That's not their intent. Their intent was not ever to be famous. Their intent was to get up and preach the Word of God, just like Brandon. But because the truth that they brought out affected so many people, they got they got big names. So, everything we see in there is that we see men's thinking, how they arrived at what they believed was was true, and I think it's good to understand that because we understand our own thinking. How do we arrive at what we believe? What process do we go through? What what things do we pick out of society? out of what we hear religion-wise or whatever, and make our, formulate our ideas. Yeah. And again, back to, we've got to be careful. We do. That we be Bereans. We're in the Word. Bereans. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> that we're in the Word. Yeah. Because what if, what if somebody, you know, we didn't have the structure that we have for learning. Yeah. That's what, they didn't have it. I know. So they, you know, they, they did their, their best and. Yeah. It's interesting so we've that you got to be, we got to protect ourselves. Not you're saying right. because people were wrong and everything, but I mean, we have to protect ourselves. We got to learn about the things that they went That's through, right. their weakness, their strengths, and mm -hmm. how it applies to us when we're studying the word. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because today in Sunday school, you know, we just got done with the uh, historical heresies, and we've got into the apologists, and so we went through um, Titan today. And the kids were reading it, and they, they picked out a couple things that he said, you know. And they said, well, what do you think about this? This doesn't sound quite right. And I go, you know, I'm glad that you picked up on that. I said, but you got to remember, this was before these historical heresies came about. So you have to go back and think that, the, the, that theology hadn't been sharpened to the point that it is today. So you have a knowledge 
in reading some of these apologists that they didn't have because they lived in a point in time when the church councils hadn't happened yet. You know, whenever all of these historical heresies hadn't happened yet. So their minds didn't go there in some of the things that they said. And so, but I was glad that those kids was able to pick up on that today. It was real, I was proud of them for that. But that was good. I was like, man, that's pretty good, you know, that you're picking up on that stuff. So anyway, um, Calvin, let's look at Calvin real quick. Calvin, he was uh, born in 1509. He died in 1564. Calvin was a second generation reformer. He's also the most controversial reformer because his name is associated with the soteriology. And this is something that ought not be. Um, during his time, he was the least controversial. Uh, he had, there, was, there was nothing controversial about Calvin at all when it, from Christians during the time of his life. On, the only controversy he, ha he had was against the Roman Catholic Church, right? It was, um, he was at odds with the Roman Catholic Church. But as far as within Christianity, um, he was highly regarded. He was highly regarded. He still is today, but today a lot of people, um, they, they think of that word Calvinism and they start going, ooh, you know, because they don't really know anything about Calvin. And that's part of why that we want to take the time and, and talk a little bit about him and learn a little bit about who he is and where he came from. Because he does have a soteriology that's named after him. And so uh, Calvin's father wanted him to become a priest at first, but realizing that lawyers made more money, decided he should become a lawyer. So he became a lawyer in 1532. It is while studying to become a lawyer that he was converted. He rarely talks about himself in his writings, but we find this in his commentary on the Psalms. So I found this little um, section where Calvin actually talks about himself in the Psalms. I've read through a lot of his commentaries. Um, and he really rarely, rarely talks about himself, but this is one place where he does. And so I'm going to read this. It says, At first, since I was too obstinately devoted to the superstitions of popery to be easily extracted from so profound an abyss of mire, so in other words, he didn't have much good things to say about the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope, right? God, by a sudden conversion subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame which was more hardened in such matters than might have been expected from one in my early period of life. Having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, I was immediately inflamed with so intense a desire to make progress therein that although I did not altogether leave off other studies, I yet pursued them with less edor. So we can see here that Calvin, um, one of the, what are some things that, that stand out here? Does anything jump out at you? Talking about the sovereignty of God here. He was deeply entrenched in falsehood and God suddenly converted him. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, God suddenly, yeah, by a sudden conversion, subdued, and brought my mind to a teachable frame. So he was saying, my mind wasn't even on the things of God. My mind was on my studies. I wanted to be a lawyer. This is what I was studying on. But God intervened. He disrupted what I wanted to do. And all of a sudden, he brought my mind to this teachable frame, and which I thought was really cool because he says, I was immediately inflamed, immediately inflamed with so intense a desire 
to make progress therein. Have you guys ever, I've got a question here. It says, has there been a time in your life that you were filled with an intense desire to make progress in your faith? You guys ever had just a moment of, you know, just intense desire, like the Holy Spirit just came upon you and you're like, I really want intensely to, to know God in a greater way. I'd love to hear, hear somebody tell me about, a, about an encounter like that. God took three years in my life at various times to put me in situations where I looked at my life in a different perspective and I was unhappy with it. Then I would, and it wasn't that, I mean, it wasn't as though like as far as my home, my relationship has, it's not those, it, it was just something inside of me. And um, so next year, another event, it was going to a, a business training event where it's like, what keeps you from doing, you know, type of an idea. Well, by the third year, it was at Cedar Creek and Greg Pugh's message, the songs, and gave us all a piece of paper it says, whatever it is that keeps you from being as close to God as you want to be and need to be, write it on there. I don't know what I wrote. And then you could nail it to the cross. And God used that. I mean, it was just like, it's talking about subdued. Yes, he did. <laughs> he brought me to that point where I don't, I just know that I just hate where I'm at. Yeah. And so God, I'm all yours. Just, just take me and do what you want with me. And, um, and that was the change in my life. Because I was a believer, I just, there's things that I held back that I was not willing to let God deal with. And at that point, it was just like, just take it all. This, I, I don't want to feel as miserable as I do now in my heart about whatever it is that's making me miserable. Because if somebody says, well, identify it, other than the fact that I, I knew I was as close to God as I needed to be, other than that, there wasn't anything bad about my life. It just, God was working on me. Yeah. And he just repeated it and repeated it until it was the time for me to, to say, okay, I'm yours. Have no, that is awesome. <laughs> it's amazing how God works that way, isn't it? Oh, it is. And that is forever going to be in your mind. Yeah. You're always going to remember that. Yeah. yeah. And it's just all, I just think about, you know, like people say, well, I'm 70 years old and I, and I just became a believer. I really feel horrible that I wasted all those years. Well, I was a believer, and I was in my 50s when I was willing to let God just take it all. I mean, <laughs> salvation, yes, but holding back and not letting him use me, thats that was my stumbling block. And yeah. so I was a babe, basically a babe in Christ in a lot of ways before that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so it's not the age. It's God knows when you're ready. Mm -hmm. And then that's when he makes his move. So That's right. And that's right. All his Be work. thankful that you're there. <laughs> Thank goodness he, he, he has a plan perfectly yeah. laid out for your life. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just like you don't expect a, a baby to be up teaching philosophy or something. You've got to wait until it's the right time for him. Mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> I see one on TV that talks about the stock market all the time. <laughs> but that's different. <laughs> Anybody else have anything that just you can 
really it really stands out in your mind when you just had an intense desire to really want to know God? Well, when I was in my early 20s, I mean, I was raised in the church and was saved and baptized, but then after we got married, we kind of got away from the church, and I got involved in a cult and because I had some friends that were in it, and I went to that, and they were talking. It was all about that you're your own center of your own universe, and you can, same thing with the New Age stuff, that you can create your own everything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and I was at one of the meetings and Jesus was like, Linda, you know this isn't true. You know that I'm in charge of all of it. And when he said that to me, I was out of there. Immediately. Yeah. Immediately. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Anybody else have one you want to share real quick? We got a little bit more time. I can share one about myself. The same kind of thing happened, um, and it was at a Bible study. I was—I I don't know if I've shared it before. I, I probably have with some of you guys individually, but uh, I was at a Bible study. I was, was invited to become a, a disciple with the pastor. The pastor wanted to do the, the model that Jesus did, have an inner, inner circle, disciple three guys. And then us three to disciple and have a, tw a group of men that were basically 12 leaders in the church. And so I was one of the three that he chose to disciple. And we went through discipleship training. We went through all kinds of stuff. And to be honest with you, I don't remember any of it. But uh, we still had some time left. And he said, you know what, I'm gonna, we're just going to pick Matthew and we're going to go through and we're going to read verse by verse through the Bible. And I'd never, I've been in church my whole life, and I had never been exposed to expository teaching, ever. Never experienced it. Um, and so I remember when he started doing that and started walking verse by verse through the scriptures, something changed in my heart, and it was, um, it was intense. Um, for the first time in my life, I mean, I was not a good student. I didn't read, I didn't read books, I didn't want to read, I didn't like to read, I barely read the Bible, I could barely spell, I mean, just a terrible student. And, um, <clears throat> but all that just changed instantly, instantly in me, and I had a hunger for the Bible like I never had in my life. I mean, just an intense one. And all I wanted to do was read the Bible. That's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to study the Bible, I wanted to... And then that led me into having a desire to learn theology and to learn doctrine and to learn all these other things. But, but God, that the same I can relate to what Calvin's saying here. Um, there was that time that God really reached in and got a hold of my heart, and He used expository preaching to do it. And that's why that I'm such a fan of that today. And that's why that you know when we were looking for a church, I said I'm not gonna, we're not ever gonna go to a church that doesn't exposit the scriptures. Won't go to a topical church. It's got to be a church that goes verse by verse through the through the books of the Bible, and so that's how we landed here. But um, but yeah, this is this is something that I can definitely relate to, for sure. Um, <clears throat> so Calvin learned Greek, which was impactful for him when studying scriptures. That's always important. That's always an, a good thing to know Greek and also Hebrew. Um, 
all I can do is look up words. A lot of times I'll go, I wonder what that means in the Greek. And I'll look it up, and that's, you know, that's what kind of drives me. So it's usually I'm a one-word Greek um, student, and that's, <laughs> but I can't, I don't have a Greek Bible like James White or somebody, you know, just read out of the Greek. I wish I could. That'd be awesome. But I uh, haven't got that to that point yet. So Calvin was forced to flee France when he re- embraced reform. So he embraces reform. He's already is he already sees the ugliness of Rome. Uh, the papal schism has already taken place. If you guys have ever read that, where all these these um, the popes were basically killing each other. There'd be one pope that, pope that revolted against another pope and murdered that pope, and then that mo- pope lasted a few months and was murdered by another guy that wanted to be a pope. And I mean, it was just a disaster. So Calvin is very aware of all that. He saw the corruption in the Roman Catholic Church. And so, of course, he um, embraced reform. He embraced guys such as Martin Luther, right? And so he wrote his first part of his famous work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, in 1536. And this book is really the first systematic theology book um, that was written during the Reformation. Um, th- you're hard pressed to find a systematic uh, theology book before Calvin. So can, that's one of the things that really made Calvin real famous was this his work on the Institutes. He was extremely young when he wrote this. That's what's so amazing. He was in his 20s when he wrote this. Um, of course, this book also went through a few different editions as he began to mature and grow in his faith. And uh, whenever he became a pastor, but really, I think whether you're um, a fan of, of John Calvin or not, this book is good. Um, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, I guarantee you, no matter where you stand on soteriology, you will learn something if you read that book, because it is really, really deep. It's got some good stuff. It's, it's a hard read. You have to have patience whenever I read it. I have to read like one sentence and then sit and think about it because it's it's he's he's very very intelligent, but um, but it's a very good read. So on page 110 it says in 1536 he was traveling to Strasbourg, Germany, but was forced to go through Geneva in order to avoid French troops. William Farrell pleaded with him to stay and help with reform there. Farrell was a fiery reformer who would travel from place to place and call people and Catholic clergy to repentance and reform, which got him into several fights because people would try to physically stop him. He was responsible for bringing the Waldensians into the Reformation. So this is an interesting period of time uh, where some preachers had to fight. (laughs) Literally, (laughs) with their fists. Uh, because people actually tried to stop them, but they were so hard-pressed that they were not going to be stopped. They wanted to um, proclaim the truth of the gospel, and it didn't matter if they came to any kind of a physical harm. And, of course, we know that many of them, of course, died because of their faith. But um, the wall... Uh, the Waldensians, if you haven't ever heard of those these guys, they were um, a group of people who started, um, they joined the Reformation, they left the Roman Catholic Church, and they were highly persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church. Many of them uh, would give their lives for the gospel uh, because Rome literally martyred many of them 
Um, they were uh, a group of people who they assigned within their families sections of scripture to memorize in case that their Bibles were ever taken from them and burned. Um, that they could all, the, the plan was because things, things were getting so intense, because you got to remember, Rome didn't even want there to be the Bible in any other language. If you had a Bible that wasn't in Latin, um, your life was on the line, right? Well, these guys had Bibles in their own language. And so they were taking and memorizing scripture. They, they, they would assign their children. You learn uh, the book of Romans. <laughs> I'm going to learn Ephesians. I'm going to memorize it. They would, they would task themselves and said and memorize scripture. Whole books. And that way, if their Bibles were taken away, they were persecuted, they had to flee. The idea was they could come back together. And out of memory, they could rewrite the Bible. <laughs> And so this was the, this is the Wal, these are the Waldensians. They're a pretty uh, interesting group of people. And so the William uh, Farrell was responsible for getting these guys started into the Reformation. So Farrell realized that he was um, not able to stay very long in Geneva. And so what he wanted to do is have John Calvin to stay and to start shepherding this church that he had started. Right? He was kind of like Paul. You know, he was going around planting churches. He was one of the first evangelists. He was going around preaching in different towns. He, he would want to keep a church, get a started church there. But he would want to plant a good pastor that would be over it, a good shepherd, a good overseer. And, uh, and then he would move on to another town and plant another church. And so he saw that Calvin was coming to town. And so he said, I want you to stay. And he actually manipulates him a little bit. And we're going to read about that. So I've got a... Um, I pulled this out of ChristianHistory.net. This is an, just a section of an article that I pulled out, um, and it talks a little bit about, about what happens here. Does anybody want to read this? I got any volunteers that wants to read this? How far down? Uh, just down the first section, down to where uh, there's a space. Okay. I'll read. With his brother and sister and two friends, John Calvin fled Catholic France and headed to the free city of Strasbourg. It was the summer of 1536. Calvin had recently converted to the evangelical faith and had just published the Institute of the Christian Religion, which articulated his Protestant views. He was a wanted man. Keep going? Yeah. yeah. Word quickly passed to local church leader William Farrell that the author of the Institutes was in town. Farrell was ecstatic. He was desperate for help as he strove to organize a newly formed Protestant church in town. He rushed to the inn and pleaded with Calvin, arguing it was God's will he remained in the city. Calvin said he was staying only one night. Besides, he was a scholar, not a pastor. Farrell, baffled and frustrated, swore a great oath that God would curse all Calvin's studies unless he stayed in Geneva. <laughs> Calvin, a man of tender conscience, later reflected on this moment. I felt as if God from heaven had laid his mighty hand upon me to stop me in my course. I was so terror-stricken that I did not continue my journey. To this day, Calvin's name is associated for good and for ill in the city of Geneva. And Calvin's belief in God, God's election, and his theological legacy to the church. Yeah, so I think this is kind of a, just an interesting little article that it showed 
uh, how Farrell here uh, threatens the wrath of God upon Calvin, basically. <laughs> That's one way to get a pastor to stay, right? Like, oh, you don't want to be the pastor here? Well, God, may God's wrath, you know, something <laughs> come upon you. And so, yeah, may, he, may he curse you if you're not the pastor of this church. Uh, I don't know how far that would get in America today, but it worked with Calvin. <laughs> yeah, you can start taking pointers here from, from Farrell if Brandon ever leaves. <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah, the, I thought that was that was pretty interesting. But it was it was interesting too here where it, it talks about Calvin being a man of tender conscience. He really was. He was a real. Um, meek kind of you know tender guy he wasn't this strong guy that you like martin luther you know you think of martin luther he was just a bull in a china closet right he he just plowed right through he didn't care what anybody said and he was he came across angry a lot of times (laughs) calvin was not like that at all he was humble and meek and kind of uh timid in a lot of ways and so um i think i thought that was kind of interesting does anybody want to read this next little section here? This this continues. This part of the same article. Um. Sure. Okay. Being of a disposition somewhat unpolished and bas- bashful, which led me always to love the shade and retirement, I then began to seek some secluded corner where I might be withdrawn from the public view. But so far from being able to accomplish the object of my desire, all my retreats were like public spectacles. In short, whilst one great object was to live in seclusion without being known, God so led me about through different turnings and changes that he never permitted me to rest in any place until, in spite of my natural disposition, he brought me forth to public notice. Yeah. So Calvin, even though he, you know, we see where he was fleeing from God before he was saved didn't have anything didn't want to have anything to do with god he was turned off by uh, what was going on uh, in the roman catholic church but god stopped him in his tracks saved him set him on a course of wanting to uh, really get to know god uh, set a, a fire in his heart but yet he also um, wanted to be left alone he kind of he didn't like to be in public he didn't like people talking to him he was kind of an uh, introvert wanted to be left alone. He just wanted to retire and be forgotten. He, he doesn't want anybody to even know really who he is, right? Um, but God just kept pulling him into the spotlight, <laughs> you know? He just kept pulling him in. People, people would just, kind of like we see here with Pharaoh, you know, they would say, oh, you know, you don't want to be the pastor. <laughs> May God, you know, God's wrath come upon So it, it was just constant. He was constantly be, being pulled into situations that he did not want to be a part of. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you guys? Remind you Moses? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does. It does. It does. I can't do this. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And then pretty soon he's, you know, talking away. That's right. That's right. God knows what he's doing. He does. He does. And I've got a question here. It says, is a person's personality type ever an excuse to disobey the Great Commission? Should it be? Or? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's put it this way. Jonah was the first one that was called to be a missionary. 
and you saw what it took to get him on the mission field? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of stories like that. <laughs> yeah. We see a lot of personality types, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert or d despite personality, God has called certain people to do certain things, and he uses you despite what our personalities are. I mean, how many people love to publicly speak? <laughs> Most. I, I know this is not in keeping what we're saying, but it's just like a filler of the roof in his part. It's, I think it's, how does that go? I, I got to sit down, or it's time to sit down, when he, he was supposed to make a decision for something. And I think that's with a lot of people. They find a reason to, well, I got to sit down. I got to think about this, you know? And it doesn't do anything. So God really has to make it so he knows what we can do yeah so sometimes he just has to force us into it that's right some go more gradually and pretty soon we find we're there even though we didn't think about it. others he has to yeah just really put them on the spot and make it happen <laughs> that's right that's right well, he's more glorified if it's something that we can't do that's exactly mm -hmm. on our own mm -hmm. and I, I wonder if we're really exercising our faith if we're not doing things that are impossible for us, that's right. Without God's help, yeah. absolutely. Well, I know in a study we were talking about the gifts. What what gifts did you have? What gifts did God develop in you? And just thinking about it, really, when it comes down to it, I mean, there are certain things that we may kind of be easier for us, but all of our gifts are from God. He just has yeah. to work in us to bring us to that point mm -hmm. and um, to you know to show us that this is what he wants us to do yeah yeah because I mean it's up to us mm -hmm. when it comes in the world we can do a lot of things people can speak publicly in the world I've seen people who've been very talented public speakers but when it comes to spiritual things you try to get them up there and it's yeah, yeah totally yeah. different that's right <laughs> that's right now you look at people and in the church over time, it's the silent majority. And now it's the silent minority. Yeah. <laughs> and because of the silence. Yeah. 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 Yeah, you're right. You're right. God always has his people though, doesn't he? There's always he does. that's why it's cool that pretty much any town you go to, you're gonna find a, a church, you know, you're gonna find a pastor. And a lot of times it may be people just kind of like what happened with Calvin here. They're trying to escape the they're trying to just go to the, the shade of retirement. They want to disappear and don't, never be heard of again. They'd be fine if everybody forgot them. And uh, God says, nope, I'm going to keep putting you in the spotlight over and over. And you try to withdraw. Nope, back in the spotlight. You try to withdraw again. Nope, just keeps putting you in there. And that's what happened here with this. So uh, I got a point here that says his first few years were very hard as a reformer in the city, that is Geneva. People would harass him throw rocks at his house at all hours of night, and even name their dogs after him. See, to me, that would be such a compliment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Back then, dogs were not <laughs> the best. <laughs> they, yeah. They would, do, they would kick their dogs, and, you know, and they would be kicking Calvin, you know. I mean, that's, they really, yeah. They really mistreated their dogs back then. You know, kind of raised me like about Christ though you know Calvin's name was mentioned people got to hear it mm -hmm. they got the, the story behind it and you know just like with Christ 
Mm -hmm. No matter what happened, he was being preached. Yeah. Even if, you know, people were saying bad things, at least his name was being spread. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That can be real discouraging, you know, if you can imagine, because this was a real man. You know, this was a man just like us, and he's Mm -hmm. trying to bring reform to the city, and this city is turned against him. And they're throwing rocks at his house and naming their dogs after him and <laughs> harassing him, spitting you know, spitting on him, mocking him in the streets. I mean, imagine how discouraging this would be if you're a pastor, you know, and, and trying to reform an entire city. And it's not even something that you want to do. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not like now where there's a church, you know, there's a church on every corner today. You are the pastor in the entire city. It, it, all of this is on you. All right. It's not like, well, I can skip town and the next guy's got it, the guy on the corner over here. I mean, this is this is your job. I mean, that's and the city's just coming against you like that. That's t- that's tough. That's hard. That's hard. Uh, next point over here, one one eleven says Calvin was involved in the policies uh, or the politics of Geneva. He drafted a set of morals which included things such as no gambling, dancing, singing of immoral songs and a curfew for the city. This set of morals was enforced, which caused non-believers to hate him. So, um, yeah, this this is something, you know, we're talking something different between what's being taught at the church and what this is a political matter. So, if you remember back then, they were pretty much one and the same. Um, the state ran religion, which was a, a problem. That was a major, major problem. Uh, that's why that reformers and um, Anabaptists and anybody that was against the Roman Church could be burned at the stake or drowned or beheaded or killed because whenever you went against what the state said uh, then that was treason right because you're going directly in violation of what the government is saying so it was punishable by death they considered it treason Um, reform started taking over and you have this battle um, between reformation and the Roman Catholic Church the Reformation started winning out in certain cities. It hadn't won all cities. Um, it had won Geneva. And so, of course, they'd always had a state-ran religion, so now the statewide-ran religion is that of the Reformation, which still isn't a great idea, but that's just where, that's the time he lived, right? He was mixed in with this. This was something that, um, that uh, that's just the way that, that things were done during this time. Um, it is what it is when it comes to that. And so a lot of these things we look at it and we, you know, we think, well, that kind of seems legalistic, but you got to remember this is beyond just, um, he's not saying that this is a salvation issue. He's just making rules of discipline that he's wanting to see um, the city, not the church, but the city to do uh, certain things. We look at it and we go, yeah, these, these are, some of these may have not been great, but... <laughs> Some of them was okay. So, um, and the city really began to hate him because he had very strong morals. Um, he he wanted um, people to to be moral, and so uh, people, non-believers, really began to hate him. And so later, the entire city turned on Calvin. Even the government uh, turned on Gal- on Calvin and Farrell because they refused to let the city 
uh, tell them how to take communion. Because the city, the city of Geneva, of course, ran the church, and they uh, they said uh, you have to take communion this way. And the Calvin and Pharaoh both go, "No, you're you're not telling us how to take communion." And so um, this this began to be um, a major problem because Calvin and Pharaoh refused to give communion to people that weren't Christians. They said, no, if you're going to take communion, you need to be a believer. And the city said, no, everybody takes communion as part of our state, our state requirement. So, and Calvin is going, I'm not giving communion to this non-believer. I'm not going to do it. And he stood firm on that. And so uh, this really blew up. I mean, there was swords involved, and I mean, the people were drawing swords in the church. I mean, it got really ugly. I don't have time to go into all that, but um, <clears throat> it, it got pretty ugly. And so um, they they took a stand to show that they believed really in the separation of church and state. That's what that's basically what they were saying. They were saying the church is is what I I'm standing on what Christ said. When it comes to this, uh, there's going to be a separation between church and state. And so in um, 1539, they were both kicked out of town. They, they were both kicked out of town uh, for two and a half years. So um, the city had enough of them because they, um, they kept standing on the Bible and not letting the state tell them what to do. So they said, fine, you're out. They kicked him out. He was no longer the pastor of the Church of Geneva at this time. So I got another point here. It says, Calvin continued to his original destination. That is that of Strasbourg, Germany. He really enjoyed Strasbourg. Um, Martin Bowser was the reformer there. Bowser had been taught by Luther. He made Calvin the pastor of the French refugee church. So this was the time of Bloody Mary, right? Bloody Mary was happening, and she was killing Christians, and so people were fleeing and they were fleeing to Calvin's church. They, he was taking these refugees that were fleeing from Bloody Mary. Um, <clears throat> so in 1540, Calvin published his first commentary on Romans, and he got married. So he was still in Germany. And so God sends Calvin back to Geneva, even though he does not want to go. <laughs> Again, he does not want to go in 1541. So what happened was the city council got together and they realized that they'd made a, a major mistake by running them out of town, Farrell and Calvin. And so they write uh, Booser, who was uh, the guy that was over Calvin, um, they wrote him asking if he would send Calvin back because they needed a strong theologian to counter the Roman Catholic influence that was continuing to drive into the city. So Rome is still trying to take the city back and the city council wanted a strong theologian to come back to be able to um, to refute them and, and battle them back and put them back in their place. And so um, the city basically decided that they're, they're going to send Calvin back. They say, okay, we're going to lend Calvin to Geneva, but we're only going to do it for six months. We'll give, him, we'll give Calvin to you for six months. But Calvin spends the rest of his life there. <laughs> so again, God, God's sovereignty at work here. And so uh, the next point says, The Sunday that Calvin stepped back into the pulpit to preach, 
He doesn't mention anything about what had happened. He simply opens his Bible to the very next verse where he left off two and a half years earlier in Romans and continues like nothing ever happened. I absolutely love that. I love that. He's up there. We can see he was an, an expositional preacher. He preached verse by verse through whole books of the Bible. Most of his commentaries are simply his sermons, kind of like MacArthur. You know, MacArthur's got commentaries that all they are is his sermons that he's preached over the years. Well, Calvin's commentaries are the same thing. They're just uh, his sermons that he preached, the verse-by-verse stuff. So he, he gets kicked out. He's in the middle of Romans, preaching Romans. They kick him out. He's gone for two and a half years. He comes back. I can just see him walking up to the pulpit, you know, and opening his Bible up to Romans. And just the very next verse, and just picks right back where he was at, takes off again. I love, you got to love that. I love that. Um, I thought I thought I think that's really really cool. So he preaches six to seven times a week to the tune of over two thousand sermons, exposited verse by verse through the Scripture. Can you imagine? I mean, six to seven times a week he preached. I mean, it takes me so many hours to put a sermon together. I just you have to really know the Bible to be able to do this. That's incredible. Six to seven times a week. Uh, Calvin had a son who was born premature and died after a few days. Calvin's wife died after nine years of marriage, which caused him great grief. And then I got a question. What keeps the believer sound in the midst of great tragedy? You guys got any comments on that? Our uh, relationship to God and knowing His Word, knowing that we can trust Him and that it is an offer for nothing, that we have a future hope. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Anybody else have anything? The presence of the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit. Come through. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think also. Um, Specifically, leaning on the sovereignty of God that yeah. nothing happens without His permission or even design. That's right. And so, being the good Father that He is, if He allowed or caused what you're going through, it's for your good. Ultimately. That's right. May not feel good every minute along the way, but. Yeah. That's right. That's one of the things that I think that, that kept, kept Calvin going. You know, he lost his, his son, and then he lost his wife. You know, um, that's hard. And the city's against him and everything else. He's pressing on. But he has been well exposed to the sovereignty of God again and again, as he talks about many times, how that God um, has been sovereign over every step of his life. Yeah. And that is a very comforting doctrine and thing to understand. And realizing God knows what it's like. He, he's Christ suffered. The Father gave up His own Son, yeah. even though you know it was a physical Son, but it was still that they had a greater bond than we could ever know. Yeah. But to be willing to be separated from Him, yeah. so that He could die for our sins, I yeah. mean, he, he understands loss. Yeah. yeah. We have a compassionate high priest. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Very good, very good. We're out of time. 
We're out of time. We got just a little bit left. I may skip over some of this and jump into some of his quotes. One of the things that I do want to mention real quick, you know, Calvin was a real bashful guy and he didn't want to be in the spotlight by any means. Um, I think later in my notes I talk about how that even when he died, he he said that he didn't want to be buried in a marked grave because he began to be popular. God kept pulling him into the spotlight. And he said, I don't want anybody to remember me. Um, I want to disappear, and I want God to be magnified. Right? That's what he, that was his desire, which is strange that now we have a soteriology named after him. <laughs> the guy that wanted to disappear and didn't want anybody to remember, um, become one of the most famous preachers of all time. Um, something else that's a pretty cool story is like as he was dying, I don't know if this is in my notes or not, uh, it may be so, but um, as he was began to die, um, he got real ill and they they would literally go to his house and pick him up on his bed and carry him to the church and carry him up into the pulpit and he would preach on his deathbed. He preached until the day he died. Until the day he died. Carried up onto the pulpit on his deathbed. Man, that's that's uh, that's a, a mark of somebody who uh, understands the sovereignty of God and knows what what uh, God has called him to do. So, I was going to say, I think it's interesting that it talks about the restrictions that he wanted to put on the city. I mean, you know, we think of dancing and <laughs> we don't understand the culture and their types of dance back then, what they were dealing with. Just like now, yeah. we could say, well, this band dancing, because when we see a lot of it, we think, yes, do do. Yeah. It's a good idea. Yeah. But, you know, um, so I see, I see that the same type of things that. Um, he was trying to do is the same things that society, simple society, is trying to pre prevent somebody from stand, uh, putting up a block against. Whether it's the drunkenness, the drugs, the immorality, all that. It's just like, if you want to be a Christian, you, you do that, but don't try to tell us what to do. You know, like you say, people who are sinners want to be sinners and they don't want anybody that, to keep them from it. Yeah. So we the total opposition to... Uh, their desires, and so we suffer the results of it. Yeah. Even though it's for their own good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I really like. I'm thinking about the Noah grave marker, which is kind of like Moses. Yeah. Because people would idolize him. Yeah. And it would not only that; it would be a big tourist attraction. It would be. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Especially Bethel Church, as they yeah. go suck the anointing out of dead saints' graves now. You know. Yeah. Um, you guys heard of that? Yeah. yeah it's just amazing. We, you see that in the world today with, with all the historic sites yeah. over in Israel and, you know, actually taking the house of Mary and it obviously yeah. ended up in, was it Italy or, yeah. yeah. And I mean, you know. And we don't even know if those are the real sites. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's good yeah. to learn the story, but, you know, like somebody getting on their hands and knees and kissing the ground and. You know, yeah. well, it's, it's I just read something last week that somebody has taken the shroud of Turin and and, and tried to make it like what Jesus would really look like yeah. based yeah. on the shroud of Turin. Yeah. Give me a break. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what he looked like. 
there's a reason we don't know. Yeah, we don't need to know that. Yeah, there's fingers of Christ all over the place. We don't have any fingers as they got anyway. Yeah, it's crazy. It's a crazy world. Fingers of Christ are up there. Yeah. <laughs> from the Father. From the cross. Yeah. yeah. People want to worship anything that they do. God. Material they do. things. They want tangible stuff. Yeah. yeah. And Calvin saw that, and he wanted. He he didn't want to be remembered. He wanted to just be forgotten and God be glorified. You know, he he's had a, a, a basically seminary too that he he started, and um, it began it began to be be known as uh, Calvin School of Martyrs because they, the guys that came there to learn from him at his seminary, they, uh, they would go out and usually die for their faith. Most of them did, went out and died for their faith. Um, of course, most of that came from Rome, but uh, it, was, it was a hard time. It was a hard time. God needed strong men during that time, even bashful ones that he would make strong, right? That's what he does. He takes the weak, uh, the weakest of us, and sometimes he uses the weakest in the greatest ways. Um, well, Rick, would you pray and dismiss us? I'd love to.